There we go. Again, today we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, Let me turn myself on there. There we go. All right, so we're starting a new series this week on the gospel-centered family. And let me just say right now, this isn't a 10-step program or something like that to have the best family life or anything of that nature. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that we can obviously apply some practical things and steps for us to take, but the, the reality is that those practical steps and things will be meaningless unless the gospel's at the center of the family. They'll be absolutely meaningless. So, so sometimes we, we jump to this thing in preaching called application, and application is what you're supposed to walk out with. This is what to do now. But if you don't give the foundation of the truth to premise what to do, then Christianity just becomes moralism, like a bunch of commands to follow and things to obey, and that's just not the gospel. So then you completely and totally miss the gospel. And a second thing happens, right? Then we just become, like, honestly, a, uh, a weekly, what do you call it, a weekly motivational speech. That's all it is, is a weekly motivational speech. And you feel really great, like, yes, I've got 10 steps of what to do when I walk out those doors today. And then you, you end up drained and empty by the time you come to the end of the week, and you're like, oh, boy, I need to get back to it. So if we root things in the gospel, if we root this series on the family in the gospel, and we put that at the center of everything, right? That's the foundation that you draw your strength from. The practical application comes after that. So... That's why our series is going to be looking at the gospel-centered, biblical, God-centered, Christ-centered. I could, you know, I was, I, there could have been a bunch of names that I, that I could have had for the sermon series. I just figured gospel-centered helps to encapsulate all of it because God is at the center of the gospel. Christ is at the center of the gospel. So, here we go. When searching for books on Amazon about the family, you're going to discover about 50,000 results. At least that's just with one search. Sometimes they vary as you, you keep searching. There's 90,000 plus results on marriage, 40,000 plus results on parenting. If you reproduce this search at Christian Book Distributors, which is no longer CBD, I don't know if you know that's just Christian Book now. Just Christian Book now. But if you do, you'll find very similar results. Tens of thousands of books and resources and video series and study guides on family, on marriage, on parenting. Right? TV series and movies always are fascinated with putting family dynamics at the center stage. Whether it's a comedy, an action, a drama. Whether it's from the 90s, right? The heyday of my childhood television watching had shows like Full House or Home Improvement, Family Matters, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Boy Meets World. Those are my childhood shows that I grew up with. And they all had family dynamics right at the center of them. But even when you think about like the more gritty television shows, like The Sopranos, right? even that has family dynamics right at the core of that television series. Even fantasy gritty type shows, like modern contemporary ones like Game of Thrones or something like that. And then you have other ones that are historical dramas, like The Crown. Is anybody here a Crown fan? Anybody watch that? I, I hear it's great. Lana loves it. I'm just, I don't like the royal family, so you know, they're just, they're not, it's not my thing. We broke away from them 250 years ago. I don't know why we're still fascinated. Like we said, we're done with that, right? But it's all right. It's okay. I hear that this is a fantastic television show, and I have seen that actress who's the, the main, uh, the, who 
acts as the queen and other stuff, and she is, does seem like she's a phenomenal actress. So, anyways, it's 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 about the life of the royal family, right? And then people, millions around the world, are actually fascinated with the real royal family. They get caught up and absorbed into those, into the things that happen, right? So with all these swirling seas of influence and perspective, many are left wondering today, well, what in the world is a family? What is a family? What is the family? Is there a firm definition that we can hold to? Is there any clear unknown purpose that we can strive for. Where did the notion of family come from anyway? Why aren't we like fish? You ever watch those nature shows, right? What do fish do? Do they form families? No. Maybe some species of fish do. I mean, there's so many millions of them. There's always some kind of anomaly, right? I get that. Right? So I know there's going to be someone out there who knows about fish that actually form family dynamics. And you say, ha, ha, ha. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Like the 99.9% of fish, what do they do? The, the female goes out there, she lays these disgusting calamari eggs all over the ground, and the male comes around and just makes a cloud of you-know-what and covers those eggs, and then that's it. They're like, boom, we're out. We're done, you know? I think there's like a species of salmon that that's what they do at the end of their lives. They swim back upstream, might be Alaskan salmon, I don't know, and they, they go and they do their thing, like, all right, we're dead now. You know, that's final act. Why don't we do that? Why aren't we like fish? Like, why do we have these unbelievable, intricate dynamics that impact and affect every aspect of our lives? Because that's what family does. Whether you're in a great family, whether you're in a poor family, it has a massive impact in every aspect of your life. It truly does. Even ones that you don't realize. Even ones that I don't realize. The more and more I grow, I become, like, honestly, I start to sound more and more like my dad. When I'm talking to my kids especially, and it's scary. Like, does he, is he here? You know? Like in that kind of, you know, I, I have sort of that mocking tone every once in a while when I, you know, it's like Clara's wa- or Cla- Karis is waddling now. I make a little joke about it. I sound like him. Like, Whoa, where did that come from? It's just like these things that pop up, right? So these family dynamics, where do they come from? Well, there's one paper published from University College in London, and they speculate that the family is nothing more than an evolutionary tick in history. They say that males began staying with females they mated with in order to protect their children from other aggressive males. That's their speculation, and it really is just base speculation. They have no foundational support whatsoever. They're just kind of like throwing stuff out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, families come from, you know, some, some males decided they want to protect the children, while other males decided that they didn't want to protect the children, and that somehow turned into a family. I mean, it's just... Honestly, like, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, like, I can make up fantasy stories, too. Like, great. So, well, there's another book, extraordinarily influential, uh, written in 1884 by Fre- Friedrich, Friedrich Engels. I don't know if you've heard about him, but he wrote this book called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And he said that family developed out of man's desire to control and dominate the masses. Does it sound like someone else, maybe, who was writing around that period of time? Karl Marx, maybe? Yeah, they were, great. They were best friends. So. so he basically took Marxist ideas and did just applied them to the evolution of the family. That's all he did. Once again, he had zero reason to believe what he did, 
But there was this fascination with sociologists back in the 1800s to just kind of make up these things and then write them into really long books, like seven, 800-page books, where they just keep repeating themselves over and over and over and over again. And then everyone thinks they're really smart and then says, oh, well, let's create PhDs that study these guys. Because they were intelligent. They used big words. But like, they just made it up. Like, he just did. He just made up this idea that the, the family developed out of man's desire to control the masses. And so man decided somehow the way to control the masses was to have a family. I don't know. I mean, I didn't read the whole book. I just read an article about it. I'm not going to waste my time. So, so here's the question, right? Because this is what they're getting to. Those two perspectives are saying that the family is just random. The family is just this random process of genetic mutations. You are electrical goo spawned from the primordial non-existence of existence. I don't know. It's all contradictory in my mind. You just came out, and then you found this other primordial goo to attach to at some point. And you just fused together, and everything is just a fabrication in your own mind. And it's totally random, purposeless, devoid of any meaning. Is that what the family is? Or... Is there a real, tangible, knowable, teachable, identifiable way in which we can define the family? Can we know the origins of the family? Is the family an institution created with a purpose? Are there rules and regulations to follow so that we can maximize our family life and relational connections? Are there values ingrained into the lifeblood of a family making those values absolutely necessary for family life to thrive, right? Well, my intention in this series is to, for us, once again, to dig deep into the God-rootedness, the gospel-centeredness of the family. And it is my goal to extract the rich jewels, the theological depths, and scale the mountainous heights of God's designs for the family, so that we can have sure grounding to stand upon. So that we're not floating around like the, like the angles and the Oxford journalists and the Cambridge London schools of sociology trying to figure out like, oh, what's the family? I don't know. How do we define it? I can't figure it out. Oh, let's just come up with this theory. Ah. Right? Like, I want you to actually be able to look at your spouse to look at your children, to look at your parents, to look at your aunts and uncles, for you to look at your grandchildren, and then for you to look at, as we're going to eventually talk about, your brothers and sisters in Christ who compose a church family and say there is solid, biblical, God-centered, God-ordained, God-directed grounding for the family that then flows into every aspect of our lives. So, throughout this series, we're going to see two coexisting truths. And I want to lay them out at the forefront. The first is this, that the family is crucially important in God's design for humanity. Family dynamics cannot be taken lightly. We aren't allowed to skip over it. The Word of God has family and directions for the family from page one almost to the very, very end. In fact, If we consider that the people of God or the family of God, it really is up until the very end. Family dynamics are center stage in every aspect of the Word of God and in our lives. So we can't take a simplistic approach when talking about the family. The second truth, the first one is that the family is crucially important to God's design for humanity. The second one is this. The family is not the most important thing. 
in God's design for our lives. So your marriage, your children, your surname, right? Our last names, our identities on this earth, they are not the most important things in our lives, and we need to understand that. They are far less significant and important than our relationship with God. And therefore, this is important, if a conflict arises between family relationships um, or duties on, on this earth and our relationship with God, only, where only one can take priority, the answer becomes very clear. We see this in both Testaments. Deuteronomy 13, 6-8. This is what we read. It says, If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, your best friend, right? Saying, let us go and serve other gods. So someone in your family says to you, goes to you in the secret darks and says, I've got an idol in the basement of my house. And this idol makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. And, and I want to share that with you. This is how, what you're supposed to say. This is how you're supposed to respond. It says, um, he, says, he says to you, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. The point is, your duty and obligation to the right worship of God is far more important than your relational connections to your best friend, to your spouse, to your children. And then, of course, we know Jesus is teaching on this, almost echoing Deuteronomy 13. He says it in Luke 14 in a different way. He says, Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This was shared last week from David Platt. When we watched his message, right? And he wonderfully explained. He's not saying, Jesus isn't saying, go out there and literally hate everybody. But the point is that your love for Christ is supposed to be so intense and such at the center of your life that the love that you have for anyone else, honestly, looks so dull and maybe even like hate, right? It's not actually saying to go hate people. He's not saying to hate your family. But he's saying that your love for me is supposed to be so much stronger infinitely stronger than anyone else's. So, I want to make this clear. Because if we focus too heavily on the family and we don't have that second aspect where it's not the most important, then we're in danger of turning family into an unhealthy idol. This happens in churches all the time. In churches, we do these series on the family and then we end up focusing too much on the family and not intending a pun there or anything like that. And we do. We focus too heavily on the family and then we end up taking our eyes off of the main goal of the family which is to glorify God and to honor Him, to have Him at the center of our life. And this ends up turning into something called traditional family. You heard that phrase before? Because there's a difference between biblical family and traditional family. Right? So traditional family might look sometimes like biblical family, but it isn't always the case. Traditional family says that a husband and a wife, they stay together for the rest of their life. But what's the motivation for them staying together? Well, they just do it because it's the right thing to do. Right? Not because God ordains it, because God brought them together, because it's God honoring to stay together. The God motivation of their heart's not there. It's societal motivation, right? And the, the traditional family might go to church together, but when they're in church together, like, what's happening? 
They're just there because it's a, it's a rote method, a weekly scheduled program for them to attend. That's, that's what the traditional family might do, right? So we have to have our mind just well organized. We have to come in and be praying and reading God's Word in prayer and saying, like, God, help direct my mind so that when we're focusing on the family during this series, that we don't, we don't just hone in on the family because then we're in danger of idolizing it, maybe making it so that we focus on what's called traditional family rather than the gospel-centered family. So my aim for us through this series and for our families is to live within our families according to God's designs for the glory of His name in this world. Asking ourselves these questions, because this is where it gets to the heart. Asking ourselves, how is my attitude how is my behavior as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a child, etc.? How am I living with the gospel at the center of all of these relationships and dynamics? How is the name of Christ exalted in my marriage? How is the centrality of the cross displayed in my parenting? How is the glory of the resurrection proclaimed when we go out on a family outing? Those are the types of questions I want us to ask. Not, not how can we look good, how, how can we put on the matching clothes and go out and put a smile on our face where really our hearts are just hardened? I don't care about a smile on your face with a hardened heart. I want your heart to be softened by the grace and the love and the mercy of God so that we're asking ourselves as we're going out, how is our family a display of the gospel in this world? Really, truly. How is everything we read about Jesus Christ end up effusing out of us in our family life. So, that's the journey for us. And I believe that the first step of the journey is to go to the beginning and look where God laid down the groundwork for the family in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. And I'm really sad to do this because you can't really separate Genesis 1 from chapter 2, but... We're going to have to do that for time restrictions today, so some stuff might be a little bit incomplete, but it will be completed next week. So it's verse 26, starting in Genesis chapter 1. Read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Starting in chapter 2, the first three verses. And just as an aside note, it's really sad that they did a chapter division here, because this isn't where the division in the text really is. It's actually after verse 3. So verse 4 should have been the beginning of chapter 2, but I don't know. I have to really shake some people up to make that kind of a change. <laughs> Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, 
and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So, this is clearly the end of the creation story. That's what this section is. The creation of humanity is at the end of the creation story. God had just beautifully, wonderfully organized the rest of existence into a systemic manner over the previous six days. Then he comes to the final piece of creation, which, as mentioned, is humanity. And at this point, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, he slows down. Right? He really slows down and hones in in these verses here. Because when you read the rest of the creation story, it's like quick, quick succession. And God created the seas and then He filled the seas. God created the, 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 the heavens, He filled the heavens. God created the earth and filled the earth. And it just like, says these things over and over again. The livestock and, 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 the, things that crawl, and the things that crawl into the earth. He filled the earth with all of the fish of the sea. Like, and that includes everything. And yet, now all of a sudden, Moses slows down dramatically here. Did you ever watch The Matrix? Right? There, there are those frames in The Matrix where they just almost kind of slow down massively. And they show Neo, you know, dodging the bullets left and right and stuff like that. Right? There's, that's kind of what Moses is doing. He's zooming in and slowing down at this section. He wants to draw our emphasis to the point that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. Now notice what I said that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. He's not the pinnacle of existence, but of creation. There are several elements that demonstrate that. In verse 26, it says that mankind has dominion over what? Verse 26, he has dominion over everything. The fish, the birds, the livestock, the insects. So mankind has rulership and authority over all of these things. All of these other things that were created in the first 25 verses. So that shows man is the pinnacle of creation. Verse 31, it says that God saw what? God saw everything that He had made and said, behold, it was very good. See, up until that point, it said that God had looked at the particular thing that He had made and saw that it was good. But now God is saying that He looked at everything. He steps back after mankind is created, steps back, looks at it all, and He declares not that it's just good, but it's moi bene. Very good. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Did I say that right? Moi bene? It's very good. It's exceedingly good. Not just good, but very good. Why? Because completion was accomplished. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the reason we read that is because it talks about God entering his rest from creation. When it says that God enters his rest from creation, it means that he's done. It doesn't mean that God like, gets tired, like, woof! Boy, that was hard. You know, I need, I need to take a snooze. I need to take a nap. Sunday afternoon nap. You know, put the Patriots game on, fall asleep on the couch, right? You got to throw a Patriots game analogy in here. Right? It's not like God lays down and takes a nap because He's tired. When it says that He rested, it's because He rested from His creation. It specifically says that. When God had finished His work and all that He did, He rested. Right? So He rests from His creation, meaning that He's done. He's done. He's completed. It's perfect. He's not creating anything else. In fact, for the rest of the Scriptures... God will transform His creation. God will mold His creation. He'll shape it and form it. But He doesn't create anything else. This is the final aspect of bringing matter into existence. So we know that, that, that law of 
What is it? It's not thermodynamics, right? I'm blanking on it. The law says that all matter in existence, it will always be in existence. Not one atom will ever come out of it. Not one atom will be added into it. We can say that because of this, right? In all honesty. Well, so the point here is that the institution that we call family, which is imbued in the creation of male and female together into humanity, is the pinnacle of God's creation. It's the final, ultimate, supreme part of God's original design. Nothing comes after that. So what do we learn about the pinnacle of God's creation? The family unit, the family structure. What do we learn about that? Number one, God has authority over His design. God has authority over the family. The family gets its meaning, purpose, and direction from God. God gives commands to the family right away. Did we see that in verse 28? Where He says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. See, God has already given directions to the family after creation. So what's God doing there? He's exerting His authority and His power over the family like He still does to this day. God has ultimate say over His design. God has ultimate authority over His creation. God has ultimate authority over the family in general and over your family in particular. God is the one who's in control. If God says something about the way the family ought to function, roles within a family, roles of authority, appropriate behavior and practices, relational restrictions and relational freedoms, then what do we have to do? We need to stop and we need to listen. We need to hear what God has to say. We're not able to make up the laws of the family. We're not able to make up the rules of the family if God has already spoken clearly about them. Now, God doesn't speak clearly about all the rules in your family. He doesn't. God doesn't give direction on to, as to who's supposed to wash the dishes at 7 p.m. or 9 p.m. or the next morning whenever you wash the dishes. Right? God doesn't give directions in every single particular aspect of the family, but the primary, most important aspect, as we're going to see through this study, God does speak clearly. Now, this is so essential and important for us to imply. Do you want to know why? Because as we're going to see in chapter 3, get to it, there's this guy called the serpent. And do you remember how he approaches Eve? Remember the question he asks her? He says, did God really say? So what's the serpent doing there? He's tempting Eve and Adam, who is with her, by the way. He's tempting them both to doubt in the authority of God. To doubt in the sufficiency of God's word. To doubt in the accuracy and the truthfulness of God's word. Now, This temptation will be whispered in our ears about family dynamics in our lives. This temptation will be whispered in our ears from pulpits throughout our day. And if you are doubting that, look at this. This is a quote from a seminary called Union Theological Seminary. This is what they say about the Word of God. This is their theological position on the Word of God. They say, the Word of God, while divinely inspired, well, we deny that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. So therefore, we affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's and which messages are men's. Now, just for a moment, think about what they're saying there. 
They're saying that this right here contains truth and falsehood. Accurate things and inaccurate things. And, and they're not talking about like little details about some kind of a town somewhere else. That's, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about like theological truths. They're talking about the, the proclamation of Jesus that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. They're talking about things like that. And they're saying that the way that we understand what's true and what's not is based on this term, critical theory. You know what critical theory was developed by? Once again, a guy named Karl Marx. <laughs> so a, a, a sociologist, an atheist sociologist from the 1800s is the person that Union Theological Seminary, a seminary that is ordaining pastors and ministers to go to pulpits throughout this country, they are teaching that Karl Marx is really the supreme authority over God's Word. That his theories... His sociology, his critical theory is what we really need to interpret this rightly. And so that ends up leading them to, if you want to, you can go on their Twitter page, and they they have this all out on their Twitter page. They say, and you don't need to even have Twitter. They put it like right on the front, so you can see it all. They say, we deny, this is what ends up developing from it. They say, we deny that salvation is only found through Christianity. That God's salvific grace is exclusive to any single faith or religion. Moreover, in God's eyes, there is no difference in spiritual value or worth between those who are in Christ and those who aren't. What? We just read through Ephesians. You can't, unless, once again, you're saying that Ephesians is just the writings of a madman named Paul. But we, we don't worry. We can filter the truth. We can filter it through through this mesh of critical theory. So we'll put the Bible into this framework. We'll shake it up. And oh, look, little truth drippings that come out. Oh, and amazing, the truth drippings are all the things that we like. Isn't that incredible? Wow, isn't it amazing? Jesus looks exactly like us. <laughs> we don't get to be like Union Theological Seminary. We don't get to have that filter. We don't have the freedom to make our own theories of how to interpret God's Word when God's Word is very clear. Look, I'm not saying that there's not any interpretive process. Of course, there is. But honestly, like if we're going to say that everything needs interpretation when God speaks so clearly, like God says, do not murder. <laughs> do we need an interpretive process for that? <laughs> well, what He says, do not murder... Yeah. I mean, you know, potentially if your neighbor is a Yankees fan. No. <laughs> Marx wasn't British, by the way. He was, uh, he was Russian. Russian, yeah, he's Russian. So, but I, was, the Brit, I can't do a Russian accent very well. Let's get Lana out here. See, God is the one who has authority. And notice what he says in verse 29. This is what God says. Before he, he tells humanity that they have dominion, he says, I have given you Dominion. See that? Verse 29. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. And so all of this dominion that humanity has, it's all in subservience to God's authority and direction. As soon as humanity breaks free from that, their dominion is broken. Okay? So that's the first thing. So God has authority. God has final authority over his design. God has final authority over the family and the way that the family functions. The second thing that we see from the creation of the family is that God designed the family as a reflection for his glory. In one sense, all of creation is a reflection of God's glory. Read this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose 
voice is not heard. And yet, even though all of creation displays God's glory, humanity uniquely displays God's glory. In verse 26, this is what we read about God's plan to, creation, to create humanity. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it says that in verse 27. So God, this poetic form, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So both genders there, right? It's not just man who's created in the image of God, but male and female are created in the image of God. Together, common humanity, every single individual imbued with the image of God in their lives. And this carries on for the rest of humanity, even after the fall from the garden. Because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, this is what God says to know. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the image of God is infused, is a part of every single human being. And therefore, it is at the foundation of our family relationships. To be made in the image of God means to represent God in this world. To display His glory in our lives. Images, to, to be imaged in God, means uh, to be idled. You know that? It's the same word for an idol. Same word throughout the Bible that's used for an idol. Meaning, what, what does an idol do? An idol is a representative for the God who's in heaven, right? So when, when the Israelites were tempted to worship these idols of Baal or whatever, you know, whatever God it was, they didn't actually believe like this was Baal, but they believed that this represented Baal. They believed that that represented the God who was in the heavens who would bestow blessings and stuff upon them. So what God is saying when He creates mankind in His image, He's saying that He's created us to be His representatives. His visible, physical representatives on earth. That's what He's given as a responsibility to humanity. And so the family was created with the intention of displaying God's glory in all of their relationships to one another and in their rulership over earth. And think about it. Why did God do it this way? Why did He do it this way? Look at verse 26 here. Because it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, it says, so God created man in His own image. So what's the grammatical dynamic there? In the first instance, you see what God's saying there? Did you catch that? The plural. See the plural? What does plural mean? More than one. Is God saying there's more than one God? No, because then he turns around in verse 27 and says, God made, uh, God made man in his own, singular, and it is the singular there, in his own specific individual one image. So how is there this plural in verse 26, but then the singular in verse 27? You know what it is? It's a hint of the Trinity. That's what it is. There's a hint in the book of Genesis at the creation of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coexisting eternally in one being known as God. And I know that that's a fully is a New Testament revelation. And so when this was written, it, like I say, it's a, it's a whisper. It's a faint whisper. It's a hint. I wouldn't expect Moses to even understand what he's writing at that point. You know, I, I bet that the prophets never even really fully understood like what's happening there. But we get to look at this through the lens of New Testament Scripture, which is phenomenal because now we get to see the triune God creating mankind in the triune God's image. So where's the connection there? If God is triune, 
If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what's that mean about God? It means He eternally exists as a self-sufficient, always rejoicing family. God is in Himself a family. He is. He has family dynamics. I mean, not like we can't anthropomorphize. We can't you know, take our family relations and then project them on God. Right? We can't do that. But the fact that God exists in relationship eternally, He's a family. God is a family in Himself before anything else was created. And so, when He creates male and female, man and woman... That's why he puts family relationships and dynamics right at the foundation of that creation. It's a reflection of who he is. Our families are a literal representation and reflection, an earthly representation of an eternal principle of our triune God. I don't even know how to process that sometimes. I don't. It's so incredible out there. But this also has practical implication. Very practical implication, because now when we talk about gender roles, and we're not going to talk about that now, we're eventually going to get into that. Notice that the male and female creation aspect right here, he identifies this gender identity, this distinction. Even though they are united and linked as common humanity, each of them equal, male and female, yet they're identified distinctly as well. Why would that be? Well, once again, think about the triune nature of God. Even though there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all distinct and unique in their personages, even though they all have the same identity. And so when we talk about gender roles, when we talk about male and female, gender roles, biblically speaking, are wrapped up in the triune identity of God. That's why we can't just sit here and like disavow them as something that's you know, part of an archaic tradition. Gender roles are literally grounded in the being of God. He chose to do that. He chose to create males for a purpose and females for a purpose. And here's the warning again. It's not what we would traditionally think, by the way. You know, the traditional thought is that the man is the big, strong, stoked guy who comes home, puts his feet up. The woman's over there washing the dishes. She doesn't really think or talk or say anything, you know, something like that, right? Those are the traditional gender roles. Those aren't biblical gender roles. So... It's a little hint of that. All right. So, God has authority over the family. God designed the family as a reflection of his glory. And the third and the final one is God designed the family for mission. God designed the family for mission. Verse 28 and all the rest of that, but I'll just read the verse 28 here. We've read it before, so just let it marinate again. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's a command, by the way. It's not a suggestion. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. Take dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's a common command here that God gave to the rest of creation. He told everything that He created, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. He told everything. So God, uh, mankind has a common mission where we're sort of like the rest of creation. We are like the rest of creation. Be, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what he tells the fish. That's what he tells men. But then there's a second part to that, where he says, take dominion, subdue it, have dominion, which is a language, which is language of royalty. This is language of royalty. This is what kings do. Kings go and they subdue lands, they subdue enemies, and they take dominion. 
That's what they do. And God uses very strong royalty language here. So God has designed the family to multiply generations, have children, right? Fill the earth. So spread out. Don't isolate. Don't just build up one little section, but spread out. So multiply, fill, subdue, take control, and rule over it. Minister over it with the kingly as kingly caretakers. So now the question is, okay, well, how was that supposed to play out? I, th- I think that's an important question. I do. But it's a hard question to ask. It really is. You want to know why it's hard? <laughs> because we kind of have to speculate. We really do. We have, to, we have to speculate as to what that was supposed to look like because our first parents failed, like, immediately. <laughs> they did. And so we never even got to see part of this command even play out. That stinks. I want to know what this was supposed to look like. So, I'm going to be honest. This is a bit speculative, okay, on my part, but I think it's theologically accurate. If you disagree, you can disagree. That's okay. But I want to ask, how was this supposed to play out? How were they supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and have dominion? What was that supposed to look like? Well, when we go into chapter 2, what do we see God do with humanity? Adam and Eve. We see Him give them a garden, right? And what are they supposed to do with that garden? It's to keep it, work it. Those two words mean to defend it, to protect it, and to minister over it. That's what it means. And so, he's, they're given this charge that's also part and parcel tied in with what we're seeing here in verse 28. I don't think Adam and Eve were supposed to sit just there in the Garden of Eden having kids and staying right there in that location for eternity. I think that their purpose, the creative design and intention, was for them to expand the borders of the garden. I do. I believe that that's what God was giving them as a mission. To protect it, to tend to it, right? To nurture it. But what happens when you nurture a garden? It grows. It expands, right? I'm not saying they were supposed to do that right away, but as children were multiplying, as people were growing, I mean, God put them in a physical location. It's not like they were just going to morph into ghosts and like interweave and intersect with each other. Like they were going to take up physical space. So what do you need? If you're physically taking up space, you need to expand. You need to grow. You need more locations. And I believe starting with Adam and Eve and then eventually moving to Cain and Abel, Could you imagine this, right? We all know about the tragedy of Cain and Abel. Just imagine. Speculate with me for a minute. Dream with me for a minute. Just imagine if they had followed the commands of God here and were obedient to Him. Imagine Cain and Abel expanding the garden. And then their subsequent generations expanding the garden. And doing what? Filling the earth. Filling the entirety of God's creation with this garden paradise of God's kingdom. Dream over. Because <laughs> that didn't happen. And God knew that from the beginning, right? God created. He gave this command even knowing that they weren't going to follow it. Just like He gave the commands to the Israelites, don't worship other gods, and then they made another god like five seconds later, right? Sometimes God gives commands when He knows His people are going to break them the next second. How gracious is He to even do that? So that didn't happen. Dream over. Or is it? Is that dream over? What are we supposed to do in the light of Christ coming into this world? 
Go. Spread. Multiply. Disciple. Teach. Raise up. See, Christ gives that command to his followers after he raises from the dead. Do you see the connection there? That's Matthew 28 and Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God's telling his people, his creation, his humanity, go and fill the earth. They fail. And in fact, they destroy the earth. <laughs> Literally. Well, God destroys the earth because of them. He wipes out the earth because they are just so horrendously wicked and evil. So God cleanses the earth. Later on, a few chapters later in Genesis. And so where they fail, and then Israel is given this command to multiply and to be a light to the nations, they fail. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus succeeds where Adam failed, where David failed, where Solomon failed, where the nation of Israel failed, where you and I would fail too if we were back then, just to be honest. It's not like we're anything great. But then Jesus comes and He succeeds And he actually, if you will, he establishes the kingdom in himself. And then he chooses his disciples. He chooses his followers. And he gives them the same command. Go share. Go proclaim. Go spread the gospel. Think of these words. Fill the earth with the glory of Christ. Go to the ends of the world. Proclaiming the gospel of salvation. Raise up new disciples. Teach them to follow everything that I've commanded you to do. And then what's the implication? Then they continue to do the same thing, right? Isn't that amazing? Adam and Eve failed in the first generation. Again, we're going to look at that next week and see how that destroys family dynamics terribly. But Christ reestablishes a greater, a new kingdom. And so your family gets to be a part of that marching forward. See, our families were not able to be a part of the garden story, but we're able to be a part of the gospel story. We're not able to expand the hedges of Eden, but we are able to spread the walls, spread the gates, spread the barriers, whatever you want, the, 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 whatever it is, the limits of the kingdom. Keep spreading them out. As the Spirit works and moves in us and Christ directs us and guides us. See, God has designed the family to fill the world with His glory. Adam and Eve failed, but Christ succeeded. Christ passed the test. Christ ended up following God through all of His commands. And then He gives us the perfect, wonderful opportunity, this great calling in our lives to continue to fill the world with His glory. God designed your family for a mission. Uh, right now, that's you as grandparent, parent, spouse, a widow, a widower, single person. God has placed you into a family. We're talking about your nuclear one. Your family is your church family. And He's created and designed you for mission, to spread His glory, to proclaim His kingdom, to see the advance and the expansion of that Gospel-centered living. That's the calling of the family life. 
Are you following it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these directions and the origins that you give to us. I thank you, Father, for the way that you, you tie Genesis to the rest of human existence. The way that you originated your plans for humanity and for the family. Lord, that hasn't died because of sin. That didn't end because of sin, but it was redeemed in Christ. And that we get to continue to follow these commands to be fruitful and multiply. Fruitful and multiply by sharing the Gospel, by living it out, by declaring Your glory, by serving one another, by loving one another, by preaching and speaking and keeping one another accountable, by uplifting and encouraging, by exhorting and calling one another to action, by comforting and sometimes chiding. Lord, You... You call us to this great mission of being fruitful and multiplying to the ends of the world. Father, may our family life, wherever we are, whatever family system we're in, may that be the the hub of our Gospel-centered living and our call to mission. We pray this in Your name. Amen.